Welcome back, everyone, to the Madness and Grace podcast. Today, I'm so excited because we are joined by Kay Warren. Um, Thank you so much for being here, Kay. How are you doing? I am doing great. It's a nice, warm, finally day, you know, after it felt like a really long winter. So it's good. Totally. And Matt's here as well, of course. How are you, Matt? I'm doing well, Emily. How are you today? Great. Well, I'm really excited to have this discussion and do this interview with you, Kay. Matt, why don't you introduce our guest? Absolutely. Uh, Kay Warren is the co-founder of Saddleback Church with her husband, Rick. Uh, That's in Lake Forest, California. And that occurred in 1980. And uh, they served there until Rick's retirement in September of 2022. Uh, After the death of her son, Matthew, who lived with serious mental illness for most of his life, she founded Saddleback's Hope for Mental Health Initiative as a way to support individuals and family members of loved ones with mental illness and suicidal ideations. Uh, The initiative also trains others in the faith community how to launch or expand existing mental health ministries. In 2019, Kay started Breathe, a ministry to support parents of children with serious mental illness. Uh, Breathe events include weekly respite retreats, weekend respite retreats, excuse me, online retreats, and free Zoom calls with mental health professionals. Uh, She is an author uh, and has authored several books, including Choose Joy Because Happiness Isn't Enough. Uh, and, uh, you know, she's also a mom, a grandma, uh, and probably most importantly to me, she is my friend. And uh, we have been friends for many years uh, as we advocate for those uh, with mental health problems. And I'm so, so very happy that you are with us today, Kay. Thank you. Thank you so much. It means a lot. If y'all don't mind, I'll go ahead and kick us off with our first question. Like many of our listeners, and of course, Matt and myself as well, The topic of mental illness is very personal for you, Kay. Um, For those who don't already know your story, could you tell us a little bit about your family's experience with mental illness? Sure. Um, Matt mentioned it there in the um, sort of the bio introduction part. Um, Our our youngest child, Matthew, um, started showing signs of, I would, at first I just called it being different. He was because he was the youngest, I knew he wasn't like his older brother and sister in his mood. And he would get angry when he was a baby. He would hold his breath till he passed out. And if he got upset, he'd hold his breath till he passed out. Um, he he just had a hard time switching moods. If he lost at Candyland, he'd throw the game and, you know, throw the board and uh, you couldn't console him. And uh, you know, he, he was just different, but it never occurred to me that the differences that I was seeing had anything to do with mental illness because I had no idea that children could experience mental illness. I, I genuinely didn't know that. And um, so when he was seven, it was when I asked, I remember asking the, um, the children's pastor at Saddleback, can children have a mental illness? And he and was told yes. And so then we started, you know, taking him to doctors and the diagnoses just began to stack up. You know, he, he just, he was diagnosed with clinical, clinical depression when he was seven. And then um, shortly after that panic disorder. And then by the time he was 11, early onset bipolar, then at 12 suicidal ideation. And then, you know, just, and then um, OCD body dysmorphic uh, disorder. And then the last diagnosis that he got, did I leave out major depression? I can't, how could I leave it major, major depression in his teenage years. And then his last diagnosis about two years before he died was borderline personality disorder. Mm-hmm. And what that really tells me is that mental illness is difficult to diagnose. 
sometimes yeah. it, it, it is just a difficult thing to try to wrangle. And so he lived most of his 27 years tortured, you know, yeah. there's just no way to put it. He just had a tortured existence and, you know, we did everything we knew to do, took him to all the doctors. We had, we were fortunate to have good insurance and had, um, you know, were secure financially and could seek help and doctors and treatment. And it just, none of it was enough, you know, none of it was enough. And um, at 27, April 5th, 2013, it's just, we just um, observed the 10th anniversary a few weeks ago. You know, he, he took his life. He, he hit that that intractable wall of mental illness one too many times. And, um, and he, he took his life. So it was, he had a tortured existence. His, his illness was serious enough that it affected our whole family, you know, our two other children, their spouses, nieces, nephews, grandparents, all of us ate with him and for him. Um, and it was rough. It was rough Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. You know, Kay, you've shared with me uh, in the past, in fact, actually one of the very first times we ever met, which I don't think was very long uh, after Matthew. Had it was just about there. six weeks, Matt. Uh, you shared with me um, the many of the reactions that uh, you, had you and Rick had received from believers, both positive and negative. Uh, I have to say, unfortunately, the more of the negative ones stuck in my mind, you know, towards you guys. And, you know, many in our audience, they may know someone who's had a similar loss. And so um, I don't like to to focus on the negative. So what advice would you give them on how they might compassionately come alongside someone who's lost a loved one to suicide? Yeah. Um, I think that the biggest word I could say is, is just be there. Your presence is the most powerful way to comfort somebody. None of us know what to say. There aren't any good words. There, there just are no good words. You know, somebody loses a child, eh, there's no good words. You add suicide to it, it just adds layers. And so words are not nearly as important as your presence, being there, weeping with somebody, letting their tears flow, not trying to stop, you know, we're so uncomfortable with grief and especially grief that's around, you know, like suicide, something that's traumatic. And we, we want to make ourselves feel better really quickly. So sometimes we try to minimize or shush, you know, the person, the grieving person. And I just can't say enough, be there, um, listen, lean in, give a hug. Uh, the most powerful thing you can probably say is, I'm so sorry for your loss. You know, I'm so sorry for your loss. I wish this were not true. Um, and be careful with trotting out all the scriptures that, that, you know, that, that frequently are, are meant to offer comfort. Um, but sometimes in the face of fresh loss, it can feel hollow and it can feel like a way of trying to push aside the depth of agony and suffering that someone is experiencing. So keep Job and his friends, because <laughs> Job's friends, they did great the first seven days. They came and they sat with him. They got on the ground with him. Bible says that they, they, were, they couldn't speak a word because his suffering was so great. Mm -hmm. And it was just when they began to try to, you know, figure it out or make sense of it or comfort or whatever, that's when they blew it. You know, that's when it all turned cold for Job. So keep those people in mind and listen, um, do those concrete acts of service that bring a meal, give a gift card, you know, for DoorDash or something or 
Uber Eats or something. Um, pick up family who are coming in from the airport, maybe for the funeral service. It's just all those practical things when people cannot think what to do. They're in shock. And when the people around them just quietly serve, quietly are there, quietly bring um, a meal and be careful. Just I'd say this last thing on this. Be careful about telling somebody, you know, how they feel. Oh, I know just how you feel, because the truth is you do not. Even if you even if you lost. um, I'm really careful when I talk to other people. people who've lost a child to suicide, I never, ever say to them, oh, I know exactly how you feel because I don't. The reality is I may have lost a child and they may have lost a child, which is same category, child loss. But from there, it's not at all the same because I lost Matthew. I lost a specific person and those parents lost a specific child. So the most we can do hold each other, weep with each other, be there, listen, um, just say, I'm not going anywhere. Your pain is mine. Those are the kinds of things that I think make a difference to grieving families. Right. No, I really like uh, what you said there about really just do something. I mean, even small little things make a huge difference. You don't have to try to fix the whole issue. You can't fix the whole issue. So why try and, uh, and be comfortable with suffering? Yes. I mean, that we are so uncomfortable with that. I think we've almost convinced ourselves that we're not supposed to ever experience it somehow, uh, even though that's what we're promised. And so, uh, you know, we we're we're uncomfortable with our own, but we're uncomfortable with others' people. So, uh, well, especially you. suffering that doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. I mean, some suffering you can sort of put make some sense around it. Suicide. It, it just doesn't. There's. Right. It just doesn't make sense. So we really don't know what to when do. When there's a when there's a clear bad guy and yes. someone's suffering, yes. we all we all can rally. We together. do slightly yeah. better in those circumstances, right. but we're still we, not very yeah. good at it. Yeah. We are also quick to say, uh, "I understand what you're feeling," and uh, and you know that doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter if I do understand it. It doesn't. That's right. I don't know that that really would even help me if someone yeah. really knew what I was. So I, guess I think we're say, better off saying something like, I hear you, or that must right. be terrible, mm-hmm. or that sounds awful, or that sounds, that must have been heartbreaking. You don't, mm-hmm. you can help people know that you're hearing their feelings without trying to act like you know how they're feeling. Absolutely. So how has uh, Matthew's passing affected your faith and what has God done in the dark times to draw you close to him? Well, that's a seminar's worth of material. I, I know, I know. Uh, I thought I put it in the middle. So, <laughs> uh, You know, at first, honestly, I just, I felt besides the shock and the horror and the trauma and all those things, I, as, as it related to God, I think I, just, I felt wounded. Mm-hmm. I felt like a really good friend had turned his back on me. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't, it wasn't like, well, you don't exist, God. Uh, it's not even like you're terrible. It's just like, where did you go? Mm-hmm. I, not that I thought we had this deal, like you would not ever allow that. Not that. It's more just like, I, I trusted you with my son. Right. I trusted you. I thought you were going to heal him and you didn't. And where were you? And and it just, it just felt just this deep wounding of, being betrayed by, by a friend. And then it kind of moved into a little bit of, I I think numbness of 
well, you know, whatever you, you're going to do what you want to do. You know, you're God, uh, you're going to do what you want to do. A little, little bit of bitterness, a little cynicism, a little numbness. Um, and, and then after a few months of both of those things, it was, it was like, I have to reconnect to God. I, I have to, I cannot live with, he, he is my heir. He is the breath in my lungs. I have to reconnect to him. And so then that process of reconnecting with God uh, has was a, was actually a sweet one because I decided that I wasn't going to ignore my questions. I had so many unanswered questions um, about Matthew's death, about God, about faith, all those things. And I just decided I wasn't going to I wasn't going to ignore those. I wasn't going to let anybody try to pacify me or placate me or tell me that I couldn't ask those questions, that I couldn't be mad at God, that I couldn't feel estranged. I just, I started writing those out on little slips of paper, all those questions. And I put them in what I call my mystery pot. I have literally have a little, a little pot. And um, I put those questions in there and I don't ignore them. I know one of these days, Jesus and I are going to sit down face to face and all those things that that have bothered me through the years, the stuff I can't answer about where, why didn't you stop him? Those kinds of things. Um, I know that we'll talk about him. And I know in the presence of Jesus, as he weeps with me, that um, it will be a dear time. Right. And I know some things will make sense then that don't make sense now. And I'm holding on for that. Right. But I also had to rebuild my hope. And so I had a, a box that actually says hope on it. I'm very literal. <laughs> and um, so I had a box that said hope and it used to be filled with verses that were hope for Matthew's healing here. I took those verses out and it's not because those verses weren't true, but they just weren't true for him. Mm -hmm. God didn't heal him on the earth, but instead I put the very first verse I put in my hope box was first Corinthians 15, 43, which says these bodies are buried in brokenness, but they will be raised in glory. Mm -hmm. They are buried in weakness but they will be raised in strength. Well, that was something I can hold on to. I believe that. I, that does, that's not dependent on what happens here on this earth. It has nothing to do with external circumstances. That is, I believe that truth. Matthew's body was buried in brokenness and weakness, but it will be raised in glory and in strength. And as I have stood at his grave for 10 years, I say that every time your body, Matthew, was buried in brokenness, you will be raised glory. Your body was buried in weakness, but you will be raised in strength. It's true for him. It's true for me. It's true for anybody who has met the resurrected Jesus. And so that began to rebuild my hope, not about an outcome here. Because listen, we don't know the outcomes here. We just don't. Our hope cannot be in our children, our hope cannot be in an outcome for our children. We can have hope for our children or our loved ones or ourselves, but our hope has to be in Jesus because he cannot be taken away. And so I really feel like the circumstances of my life tried to yank the tree of my faith. You know, the Bible often talks about that, that we're like trees planted by the river, Jeremiah 17, Psalm 1. We're, we're like trees planted by the river. And I feel like the circumstances of our lives are constantly trying to like rip the, the, the root, rip us out by the roots. But because I had spent more than 50 years sending my roots deep into the character and the goodness of God, when those circumstances threatened my faith, the roots held. And so 
I would tell anybody who's listening, it is never too late to start sending your roots deep into the goodness and the character of God because the circumstances and our spiritual enemy will do everything possible to try to rip out the tree of our faith. And your roots can hold if you have made a practice of sending them into, into the goodness of God. Wow, that's very powerful. I really appreciate you. And great advice that. for everyone, not even if they're not going through something like this. It's, right. It applies to everything. Thank you. Absolutely. Yeah. And we, you know, in the good times is when we are getting those roots in deeper. We don't wait. Don't wait. You know, we, Job didn't wait. He was prepared. Exactly. And he, and he held on. Exactly. Uh, you know, and so uh, now, you know, you and I have uh, spoken far too many places probably over the years <laughs> to, in the same in the same presentation about <laughs> the church being involved in uh, mental health uh, care. Uh, and caring for those who are struggling with these these illnesses. Um, what are some positive changes that you've seen, say, over the last couple of decades uh, in this area of the church and, and yeah. mental health? I think the first, the biggest thing for me is that more and more people are believing that it's real, you know, that it's not just a spiritual issue, that it's not a try harder issue, memorize more verses issue, confess your sins. You know, it's it's much it is not just a spiritual issue and that there really is um, something going on in our bodies and our brains. And that to me is so positive. Um, that's been a huge change. Uh, still, there are pockets of people that still feel it's only a spiritual issue, that it's only this and, or, you know, it's only demonic or whatever. And, but those folks seem to be fewer and fewer. So I'm really grateful for that. And I think it's because of efforts of some of the stuff that we've done, Matt, you know, I mean, some of the conferences where we've been at and we've talked to pastors and church leaders and, and folks helping them understand, you know, the reality of mental illness. But I think the downside of that, the only downside I would see to that is, um, is that then we, people can then say, oh, well, it's a medical issue. And the church we don't do medical issues. We don't know what to do with a medical issue. We'll let the medical professionals take care of that. Um, I don't know what to do. If it's medical, great. Let the medical professionals take care of it. The problem with that is that as John Swinton, Dr. John Swinton, one of my mentors says, as long as you look at this through the lens of, okay, there's a, there's a person with a mental illness, then you don't have to care or you don't have to care as much. You don't have to do anything. But if you switch it and you say, oh, there's a person with a mental illness, then suddenly it's the church's job to care about persons because theoretically nobody cares for persons like the church. That's our, that's our DNA. That's our charge from God is to care for, uh, care for each other and care for vulnerable people. So I, I love the emphasis on it's not just a spiritual issue. It's real. I think we just have to be careful then that we still take responsibility for the part that the church can play, which is to um, love, care for, support, um, be there, protect, nourish uh, people with mental illness. The church, the church can't say, sorry, you burned too many bridges. The church is the place where people living with mental illness is the last resource for people living with mental illness because fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters, the bridges may get burned you know, with um, sometimes the devastation of mental illness, family ties can lessen, but the church can't ever do that. The church has to be the one last safe resort 
um, that says we will never leave you whether you are in whether you've relapsed, whether you're healthy, whether you are in bad shape, whether you are going to make it or not make it, we're going to be here. And I, I love to see the churches that are stepping up in those ways. Great. Thank you very much. That's a great segue into the last question. You know, you mentioned mothers, fathers, you know, family, um, how those ties could be broken. But for all the mothers and fathers listening who may have a child diagnosed with a mental illness, what encouragement can you offer them as they struggle daily to care for their own child? Yeah, it's a long journey. Um, mm-hmm. The journey through mental illness, it's a long, long journey. And parents and family members need respite need some places to stop and breathe, catch your breath. And uh, which is why the ministry that I, that I have called breathe is in exactly intended to be a respite time or a breathing spot on a long journey. Frederick Buechner has a quote that he said after his daughter who nearly died of an eating disorder, he said, you know, what good is a bleeding heart if you bleed to death? You know, what good is a bleeding heart if you bleed out? So as parents, we have to make sure that we are on this long journey taking care of ourselves, um, which is very difficult to do because if there's if you have a loved one with a really intense, intense needs, um, it's difficult to find time and ways to take care of yourself. And I don't mean things like sometimes you read in magazines, oh, you know, take a bubble bath or have a cup of tea <laughs> or, you know, as though that's going to make it all better. It's that, deeper that didn't than do it for you? <laughs> well, for about three minutes. So that's yeah. about it. Um, so it's got to be, it's deeper than that. It's making sure that you are really reconnected with God. I absolutely believe in learning how to breathe. I mean, we all breathe, might as well learn how to do it well. God does something in our bodies when they are well oxygenated. Our brains work better. Our bodies, our central nervous system works better. We're better equipped to make good decisions for our family. So I'm serious. Learn how to breathe. Look at breath work. Um, I, I think that breath connects us with God. It points us back to the very beginnings of, of our creation that he breathed his breath into us. And so to use prayer, our breath as prayer, I I mean, there's so much I could say, but I I just think for myself, learning how to breathe has been a really important thing and keeping connected with God. Um, I I look for beauty every single day. I have to be, I'm a birder. I'm a, I'm a total birder nerd now, Matt, you didn't know me as a birder, but I'm a birder now and and I'm crazy (laughs) about it. And I have to be outside every day and I'm, I'm in nature, but that's God gave us these five senses, not just to protect us, but to actually sweeten what can be sometimes a bitter experience. Life is hard. And these senses of ours to take in beauty, to take in music, to take in nature. Yeah. So parents, those are the kinds of practices that I think actually strengthen us and allow us to keep going and keep hope alive um, over a very long journey. I like that you're you're giving parents permission to have moments where they don't just think about their ill child. Yes. Uh, and so uh, just because your child has an illness, a mental illness, doesn't mean you don't have a life. Yes. And so I appreciate that. That's great advice. And Kay, thank you so much for sharing your story. I know I'm personally very touched by it. So I know our listeners are going to be as well. Um, for everyone who's listening, I, of course, will leave all of HHCI's information in the show notes as well as Kay's Ministry Breathe so that everybody can check that out. Thank you so much again, Kay and Matt. Thanks for being here, Kay. Good to be with you always. Thank you.